Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning and welcome to Friday. Uh, And it was great to see a little bit of sunshine around my neck of the woods yesterday. I hope you saw a bit as well. Certainly beats all that bloody rain. Speaking of, um, I'll talk a little bit more about the floods this morning and uh, the debates. I mean, obviously, we still have some issues along the mid-north coast and around the Hunter region of New South Wales, but back in Sydney, the debate has certainly turned to flood mitigation. And the big question surrounds Warragamba Dam and whether or not the New South Wales government should go ahead with its plan to build the dam wall or extend the dam wall at Warragamba by 14 metres. Now, I'm against it. Many are, although uh, there are others, uh, not only within the state government, but also local councils, including uh, the one over at Hawkesbury, who are for the raising of the Warragamba dam wall. Now, the dam itself happens to sit in the Wallandilly Shire, itself uh, no stranger to flooding. Uh, I mean, I live in the Wallandilly Shire, and have family there and not far from the dam itself. Uh, We were isolated during the week because of the flooding. Uh, Couldn't get through Wallachia and if you wanted to get out of the Shire, you had to, you know, do a detour some two and a half hours away down near Picton. Anyway, Matt Gould is the Mayor of Wallandilly Shire Council and he'll join me on the program this morning. Uh, He, his council and many others oppose the raising of the Warragamba Dam Wall and I'll find out exactly why. It comes of course, just a day or so after Susan Templeman, well, she, uh, the member for Macquarie out there at Richmond, Windsor, she doubled down on her earlier comments this week in the media that she doesn't think uh, raising the damn wall is the most viable option either. I spoke to her yesterday, and uh, by the way, there is a, a piece that's been published, uh, an article that I wrote for the Big Smoke Australia, and uh, just on the raising of the Warragamba Dam Wall, and uh, the link is up on the Facebook page. Uh, we have a new sponsor on the program starting from this morning. So you'll hear me uh, a lot talking about Psychology Services New South Wales. And if you follow us online as well, uh, you'll see many LinkedIn uh, comments and content. So we thank them very much for coming on board. That Psychology Services New South Wales based in Western Sydney and offering a whole range of mental health services, men's sexual health services and others, which I will explain to you more about over the coming weeks. And uh, we'll speak to the owner and and get amongst some mental health issues as well. I think it's vitally important. Anyway, so thank you to Psychology Services New South Wales for coming on board as the show's sponsor. Uh, Now, Boris Johnson, is he gone yet? Is he out? Anyway, we'll talk about that. We'll keep you updated on the latest from Bojo. Uh, I mean, he was, I mentioned earlier this week, he was a dead man walking. Um, you know, no disrespect, but you can't have 55 of your ministers resign in one week and expect to stay on. 
Um, Bernard Collery, good news, good news for whistleblowers. Uh, yesterday, of course, the uh, new Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, threw out the case, the Commonwealth case against him, and, of course, he was defending whistleblower uh, K, uh, that witness K, and all the rest of it. I'll explain all the details soon, but it was a story that broke yesterday, and thank you for all the comments on the Facebook page in relation to that. Uh, former Deputy New South Wales Premier John Barillaro, well, it's getting murkier by the day as we thought it would yesterday. It was discovered that uh, yet another woman had been touted for this uh, plum half a million dollar taxpayer funded gig as a trade ambassador to the United States before, you know, old bros got the job. Yeah. Anyway, there's so many questions that need to be answered. And I think, um, I'm sorry to say, uh, Stuart Ayres, some of it is leading back to your office. So we'll get into that story. Um, COVID-19, the fourth jab, will you get it? I mean, I've had uh, three. I'm not quite sure yet, although I am in the age group now with it. They're suggesting anybody over 50 and those uh, that may well be vulnerable should go and do it with these new B4, B5 variants of Omicron apparently going to cause us all sorts of distress. So we'll get into the, the latest COVID-19 news as well. I've got a really nice story from New Zealand that I'll get to, a, a conservation story, an environment story, where on one of their islands, they are totally trying to eradicate pests. And one of the pests includes possums. They are pests, let's be honest. They might be a little cute when you see them with their little baby possums, but they're pests. Anyway, I'll get into that story as well. Uh, I've got a... <laughs> Crazy story on a, a drug-running syndicate that hopefully has come to an abrupt halt in Sydney. It was known as the Santa Syndicate, so I'll get to that story as well. And speaking of crime, although it's you know at the lower end of the scale, um, Revenue New South Wales are still chasing a stack of people, in particular from southwest Sydney, for not paying their COVID-19 fines. And the amount owing is just shy of $700,000. So Revenue New South Wales released data yesterday uh, that was published, and I suspect it's a bit of a warning to those that are yet to pay their fines to get in contact with Revenue New South Wales. And look, believe it or not, um, they will take further action, including, if you don't pay the thing, taking away your driver's licence. So all of that coming up, we'll keep you updated on the latest news, of course, on the half hour as we do, thanks to the newsroom at Air News. We thank them very much, and we'll play some bangers for you as well on this Friday. So, thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales, let's get into it. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. G'day. Thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Welcome back to the program, Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, some big news yesterday. The Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, sensationally dropped the prosecution against Witness K's lawyer, Bernard Collery, for allegedly revealing spying on Timor-Leste. Now, Dreyfus announced in Sydney yesterday that the Commonwealth had discontinued the case in which Collery was charged with unlawfully disclosing information about an Australian secret intelligence service mission to bug the office of Timor-Leste, their government offices. Now, Collery was set to be tried in October on five counts of leaking classified information for allegedly helping his client, an ex-spy known only as Witness K, reveal a mission to spy on Timor-Leste, which is an impoverished ally of Australia, during negotiations over oil and gas reserves back in 2004. These oil and gas reserves, of course, are in the Timor Sea. 
Now, yesterday, Collery said the end of the prosecution was a, quote, good decision for the administration of justice here in Australia, and it would allow him to move forward with his life and legal practice. He thanked his lawyers, who, by the way, worked pro bono on this case. He said, and I quote, I want to thank all of the people across Australia who have supported me and worked so hard to assist me throughout this case. I'm in awe of the depth of support in our community for ethical values. Now, since Labor's election in May, the new government has come under renewed pressure from crossbench parliamentarians to drop the case. Dreyfus said he would consider this an urgent priority, throwing the case into significant doubt due to his comments in opposition that the charges were, quote, an affront to the rule of law. Yesterday, Dreyfus announced he had determined this prosecution should end and that he had exercised his power in the Judiciary Act to discontinue it. In taking this decision, I've had careful regard to our national security, our national interest and the proper administration of justice, Dreyfus said in a statement. It went on to read, This decision to discontinue the prosecution was informed by the government's commitment to protecting Australia's national interest, including our national security and Australia's relationships with our close neighbours. The Attorney-General had notified the ACT Supreme Court, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions and Collery's legal representatives. Now, of course, Witness K had pleaded guilty to breaching secrecy laws, resulting in a three-month suspended prison sentence in June 2020. Collery fought the charges in a long-running and expensive legal dispute. The case had languished in the courts of the Australian Capital Territory, beset by repeated delays and interventions from the Commonwealth Attorney-General, who had imposed secrecy on the proceedings using the National Security Information Act. Now, the case against Collery and Witness K were launched shortly after Christian Porter became Attorney-General in December back in 2017, after he gave consent for the prosecutions, which had not been forthcoming from his predecessor, George Brandis. Now, yesterday, George Brandis told The Guardian Australia that his decision not to approve the prosecutions and certify they were in the public interest was, quote, based on various advice I'd received that I'm not at liberty to go into. Ultimately, that was my judgment, but I don't wish to criticise Mr Porter for consenting, Brandis said in an interview in late June. Now, Christian Porter back in 2018 said the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions considered the brief of evidence and subsequently made an independent decision that a prosecution was the appropriate course of action. Accordingly, the Director sought my consent to that decision to prosecute which consent I provided. Now, back in 2019, Porter explained that he had been advised the evidence meant that there was a reasonable prospect of conviction and a public interest in the proceedings. Well, of course, there were many who disagreed with that, and even yesterday, Centre Alliance MP Rebecca Sharkey welcomed the new decision by the new Attorney-General Richard Dreyfus. At no point during this wretched affair has there been a clear and persuasive argument for why pursuing this case is in the public interest, Ms Sharkey said. Meanwhile, Independent MP Andrew Wilkie said the Australian government is the real villain in this case, having made the appalling decision to spy on uh, East Timor, which is one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia. Dreyfus said he had also been asked to similarly drop prosecutions against the Afghanistan war whistleblower David McBride and the Taxation Office whistleblower Richard Boyle.
Last week, the former Senator Rex Patrick said he was deeply disappointed that Dreyfus had not opted to use his power to discontinue proceedings against Boyle. All right, well, there we go. That's uh, a big news story that broke yesterday. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning brought to you by Psychology Services New South Wales. On this Friday morning, it's great to have your company. The 8th day of July and yesterday we learnt an award-winning female global executive was shortlisted for the role of US Trade Commissioner in March, well before former New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro was controversially appointed to the position. It becomes murkier and murkier by the day. Internal government documents have revealed former Telstra Businesswoman Award finalist Kimberly Cole was one of three candidates shortlisted for the New York role ahead of a planned meeting with Trade Minister Stuart Ayres as part of the recruitment process. Now, Mr Barillaro ultimately claimed the $500,000 a year job but withdrew last week after intense scrutiny over his appointment which triggered two separate inquiries and backlash from his former colleagues. Now, documents produced under parliamentary order this week include an email sent on March 16 by an executive assistant in Air's office with the subject title, quote, Minister Phone Call, Meet and Greet with Preferred State Trade and Investment Commissioner, US candidate Kimberly Cole. Five days later, Investment New South Wales Chief Executive Amy Brown responded to the email um, and timed the meet and greet and clarified that there remain three shortlisted candidates. I'd like to clarify that we don't currently have a preferred candidate for the US role, Miss Brown wrote, and the Minister is meeting Kimberley in her capacity as a shortlisted candidate only. Now, Brown was the first witness to front a parliamentary inquiry into Mr Barillaro's now-defunct appointment last week. She did not, did not give evidence about Cole or that she was shortlisted before the position was finalised. The recruitment process for the Trade Commissioner to the Americas, of course, has been heavily scrutinised since it emerged former Deputy Secretary of Investment New South Wales Jenny West was initially offered the role before it was sensationally withdrawn. Leader of the opposition in the upper house, Penny Sharp, said it was troubling to learn that another woman had lost out in the recruitment. In a statement yesterday, Ms Sharp said it's clear there was another well-qualified woman suitable for the New York role, yet she was overlooked for John Barillaro. Questions remain about how this was able to occur. Now, Ms Sharp said more information was needed to tell the story, but claimed the document showed, quote, a process determined to get a particular outcome, unquote. Now, she added that it was unfortunate Brown did not give a fuller description of the process that led to Barillaro's appointment. Meanwhile, a LinkedIn profile for Cole matches a redacted resume included in the documents produced to Parliament. Both describe Cole as the Global Chief Commercial Officer at Link Global, an IT consulting firm previously generated uh, $90 million in revenue annually. The CV stated, working across the globe, including in the UK and the US, with significant time in Asia, from Australia to Japan, India to Taiwan, has given me insights on how to operate and adapt to new markets and localised global approaches. 
a recently prepared Q&A by Investment New South Wales outlining Barilaro's appointment describes his US credentials as having a proven ability to build networks, negotiate and win deals in both politics and his former life as a businessman. No one knows New South Wales like Mr Barilaro, it added. And his knowledge of our state will be critical in encouraging businesses from across Americas to set up shop in New South Wales. Now, Mr Barilaro's resume is not included in the document bundle produced under the call for papers. The parliamentary inquiry is exploring the level of influence ministers had on the recruitment process for the Trade Commissioner role, which is meant to be a public service decision. Now, the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, insisted that he has had nothing to do with the appointment process, maintaining it was done at arm's length from the government. The Herald last week revealed Ayres rejected an initial Cabinet decision made days before Premier Gladys Berejiklian resigned in October to make the overseas roles ministerial appointments. Sharp also said an investigation would be held into the leaking of a transcript from a closed session of the inquiry last week, published by News Corp yesterday. Extracts of the transcript included comments made by Brown about West and why the offer had been rescinded. She said it was an agrarious leak from the committee. There's no other place that it could have come from. It's one of the most serious breaches of parliamentary process that I've ever witnessed. It serves no other purpose than to attack a witness, Miss West, and perhaps to try and intimidate them before appearing in front of the committee. Now, West is scheduled to give public evidence to the inquiry next Monday. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul. Okay, welcome back. Thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Make sure you check them out online and I'll be speaking uh, with uh, the owners and and people involved in this wonderful uh, business about how the NDIS is making mental health support more available for people in New South Wales. So we'll do that over the coming weeks, but I do thank them for coming on board and being a sponsor of the program. Well, let's go to some COVID-19 news now. All Australians over the age of 50 have been encouraged to get a fourth dose of a COVID-19 vaccine as an even more infectious sub-variant of the Omicron strain spurs a surge in cases. Health Minister Mark Butler said the wave of new infections was putting pressure on the nation's hospital systems and is urging older Australians to follow the latest advice from the immunisation expert panel regarding a fourth dose. Yesterday, he told media, states are reporting increased numbers of cases and increased numbers of people requiring admission to hospital because of COVID. He said there's now 4,000 hospital beds across the country filled with uh, patients who have contracted COVID-19. There's an increase of almost 1,000 in just the last few weeks. Now, Mr Butler said the number of people in intensive care units with COVID was up 40% in the past week alone. Being up to date with your vaccines is crucial to protecting you against the risk of severe disease and particularly the risk of hospitalisation or worse, Mr Butler said. He confirmed Australia's Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, that's ATAGI, has recommended all Australians age 50 and over take a fourth dose of a COVID vaccine. 
Now, Mr Butler said for people aged 30 to 49, a fourth dose was also available if they wanted it. The third element of the advice I've accepted today is that the interval between doses of vaccine or the interval between having been infected with COVID and getting your next dose of vaccine has been narrowed from four months down to three months, Mr Butler said. Now, these new changes will take effect from next Monday, July 11, to give primary care providers and pharmacies time to start making bookings. Mr Butler said the BA4 and BA5 strains of the Omicron variant have proven very good at evading people's immunity. He said if you have immunity from vaccines or from having COVID, you're still susceptible. He said just because you've had COVID earlier this year doesn't mean you're not at risk of getting it again with this third wave. Now, Mr Butler said there were still more than 5 million Australians for whom it has been more than six months since their second dose, but had not yet had their third booster. He said he urges those people to go out and get a third dose. It will provide you and people around you with more protection against this highly infectious subvariant BA4 and BA5. Now, Mr. Butler said more than 40% of people aged over 65 had not taken up the opportunity to have a fourth dose despite being eligible. Well, who will be eligible for a fourth dose? Just repeating, all Australians over the age of 50 are encouraged to get a fourth dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, while those over 30 are also able to access the fourth jab if they wish to. And again, why do you need a fourth COVID booster vaccine? Well, the efficacy of COVID vaccines begins to wane after four months. A United States study found the ability of a third vaccine dose to prevent infection was 87%, 87% two months after receiving a third jab, but dropped to 66% four months later. The ability of three vaccines to prevent severe disease and hospitalisation dropped from 91% after two months to 78% after four months in the United States study. Well, 5 million Australians have had only two doses of vaccine and they are apparently very vulnerable right now. The AstraZeneca vaccine was found by a US study to have no effect against Omicron. So if you've already had two jabs and they were both AstraZeneca, you are very vulnerable to infection right now, we're told. If you only had two doses of an NRMA vaccine like Pfizer or Moderna, you're also at risk of infection. A US study found 25 weeks after your second dose, the effectiveness of mRNA vaccines against infection from Omicron was just 14.9%. Five million Australians, as I say, have not had their third jab and they should get it now according to federal health authorities. Now, if you think you are protected because you've caught COVID before, well, then you're wrong. There is growing concern that the new BA4 and BA5 Omicron variant sweeping Australia has learned how to evade not only protection from the vaccines, but also immunity gained from catching the infection itself. Many people who had earlier versions of the virus are getting infected again, we're told. Well, I guess the question is, how long will a fourth booster protect you? Studies overseas in Israel have found a fourth booster dose of the existing vaccines will lift your immunity against COVID infection by around 10 to 30%. This extra protection begins to wane within five to eight weeks. However, it should be enough to get you through the worst of the winter outbreak and help you get through to warmer weather where people are more likely to gather outside and less likely, of course, to spread the infection. 
Okay, well, so many questions, but look, it's important, as I always say, to speak to your doctor and follow the health advice. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning, brought to you by Psychology Services, New South Wales. Great to have your company wherever you're listening to us, whether it's on starterfm.com.au, iHeartRadio, tune in, or maybe listening back on the podcast. Thank you for doing so. Well, it's a Friday morning, so let's have a, a nice environmental story, shall we? Well, over there in the land of the long white cloud in New Zealand across the Dutch, conservationists are embarking on the largest attempt ever made to eradicate introduced predators from an inhabited island. Manaki Wanua Landcare Research a Crown Research Institute has signed a $2.8 million partnership with a, another conservation group, Predator Free Raruga, <laughs> to eradicate predators including possums. Really? Well, I guess they are. I, for New Zealand, they'd be predatory. Possums, rats, feral cats and hedgehogs over the next four years. Now, the project will also include research programs to better understand how pests proliferate and how best to manage them. Now, Raikura sits off the coast of the South Island and is around 180,000 hectares with a permanent population of some 400 people and roughly 45,000 tourists a year. The island boasts national parks. I'm looking at it here. It's beautiful. Distinctive ecosystems, significant dunes and pristine freshwater systems. And it's home to many vulnerable native species, including native birds, geckos and bats. However, like a lot of uh, formerly protected ecosystems, the introduction of pests has affected its delicate flora and fauna, including the flightless national icon, the kiwi. Well, of course, they need to do everything they can to protect the kiwi, the lovable nocturnal uh, kakapo, the heaviest and only flightless parrot in the world. That's also apparently affected. Uh, Presently, it's in a state of uh, sadness according to local rangers. On the surface, a visitor might see the beautiful treasure that it is. However, its true manner or power and Maori essence will be recognised when the indigenous species return in numbers, as seen by our ancestors. In Maori legends, Rakura is also known as Tipunga or Tiwaka a Maui. How am I going with all this? The anchor stone of Maui's canoe, the South Island, from which he raised the great fish, the North Island. Now it will act as a motif for anchoring the country to a nationwide predator-free jail. Okay, well that sounds like a a wonderful initiative. Uh, What they learn there will help pave the way for the whole country to become predator-free, according to experts. Acting Chief Executive Dr Fiona Carswell said working alongside the trust in the community is what would bring the Institute's research to life. She says, we relish working with local knowledge and approaches to achieving biodiversity aspirations for Rakura. Similar predator-free projects have occurred around the world, including on the island of South Georgia in the South Atlantic Ocean. Its uh, rats eradication covered roughly 350,000 hectares, but the island's population is only 20 to 30 people. 
while smaller Rakura has a much higher population and unless someone else gets there first, predator-free Rakura will be the largest predator eradication to date globally with a community of this size. New Zealand's leading independent conservation group, Forest and Bird, has praised the project, calling it a massively ambitious and important vision that will pave the way for environmental protection across New Zealand and around the world. 60 years ago, Forest and Bird members led the way uh, and led the very first humble eradication on Maria Island in the Hukori Gulf, which covers only one hectare, according to the spokesman of this group, Forest and Bird. It's incredible that today New Zealand is researching the removal of all introduced predators off an island 180,000 times bigger than that of Maria. So there we go. We wish them all the very best. Marcus Paul in the morning. Matt Gould is uh, the newly appointed Mayor of Wallandilly Shire Council and he joins us on the program. G'day, Matt. G'day, mate. How are you? Really well. Look, before we get into the nitty-gritty of uh, Warragamba Dam, I thought I would ask you first and foremost, uh, how do you sleep? I mean, you have been so busy in the last, well, certainly since you became mayor at the recent local government elections, but I don't think I've ever come across a mayor who's been so proactive in his community, certainly on social media. You're travelling everywhere. You're giving updates. You're filming uh, events around the Shire, including floods and Closed bridges, etc. You must be due for a break. Uh, look, it's been a, it's been a very long week or two. I've got to say, um, but you know, if if you're going to do the job, then you got to give it your all. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, um, I guess we'll start with the localised flooding and damage. Of course, the Camden area takes in Wallandilly Shire. Um, unfortunately, for these residents, again, they've seen more localised flooding with the recent rain event. Yeah, look, we sit just um, southwest of, of Camden Council, um, and we've actually got pretty much all of um, Sydney's water supply flows through us. We've got all of the dams in Wallandilly. Um, and yeah, the last week we've seen some some very significant flooding. Um, the main, the main uh, street of Picton and the CBD there um, have been sandbagged up for the fourth time this year. I saw them the other day, yes, but th- they escaped a bullet this time, was that right? Yeah, we did. We thought we were. We there were a couple of times there. We thought it was um, Stone Quarry Creek was going to break its banks, but mm-hmm. it came right up to the point where we need to close the bridge, and then it just sort of sat there uh, and went back down. But um, unfortunately for our, our business owners, once again had to sandbag up. Um, and you know, when they when they've sandbagged up like that, they can't trade. Um, and you know, for some of them now, it's you're getting up towards two weeks of, of lost trade from uh, from all this sandbagging that's had to happen with all this flood. So it's it's a real challenge for them. Um, elsewhere in the Shire, uh, we've saw significant flooding um, from the Nepean. Um, we've had 16 and a half metres at Menangle. Mm. Um, we had a number of isolations of, of, of rural um, properties. Um, um, well, we even not the- so rural properties. I mean, I recall for a time the other day, I mean, I'm out Wallachia Silverdart Way, Warragamba Way, and uh, we were actually isolated. And I wouldn't necessarily call that a rural settlement. I mean, quite a, a, a fair bit of Wallandilly's population was uh, effectively cut off for, uh, for a number of hours until some of the waters receded. Yeah, look, absolutely. I guess I guess we um, we say isolated when there is just simply no way in or out. Um, yeah, a lot of the Shire 
um, were effectively isolated. Mm. Um, in, in fact, the entire north of the Shire, uh, so from an area stretching from Warragamba down through the Oaks and, and Oakdale, um, that entire area um, actually had to come out through Picton at one point because yep. every other uh, route out of the Shire was was closed. Um, and, mm. yeah, that, you're looking at a, a two to two and a half hour detour uh, for people in, in, say, Warragamba or Silverdale That's it. Um, when they have to do that. I did that uh, uh, coming back on Sunday night uh, when it all started coming down, uh, when I, I knew Blacksland Crossing was... Uh, closing up so I, I stayed on the m5 and drove all the way down to picton and fortunately i was able to come through eventually on Burragarang road but um just a, an aside will there be a time will there come a time and i think there probably should as more housing development goes up in areas like silverdale and and further out toward uh, warombi and then out to oak uh, the oaks and oakdale will there come a time when we need to build something a little better than Baines Hill, that is uh, a, a higher crossing at Blacksland Crossing there um, to get to, from, I guess, Wallachia up into that area? Look, it's it's certainly something that we have been working on and we got some funds from the federal government a couple of years ago um, towards some of the technical studies. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the reality is that a, a project like that would need to be funded by the state or federal government. Mm. Um, the cost of, of the bridge that we, you know, we're talking about there is is several times council's an, annual budget, but it's certainly something I think that needs to be looked at um, as you know, we continue to see um, uh, yeah, uh, increase in the population uh, across the Shire and you know, we need to have alternate ways out. Um, I guess the, the other important thing to I guess, highlight with Blackson Crossing is we're talking about reducing the risk um unfortunately that the floodplain there at, at wallachia um we're never going to be completely flood free it no. just be it'll be less impact because wallachia actually gets the deepest flooding um of anywhere in the hawkesbury nepean yep. um so the probable maximum flood there so the biggest flood that you can get um actually goes right across the entirety of Wallachia Village. Um, so we can get pretty severe flooding. But what we want to do is have it so that um, you know, the smaller scale flooding doesn't doesn't take out the crossing and then we've got an alternate way out. Yeah. Well, look, I, I don't think that uh, there'll be any other option matters uh, as time goes by in the airport. What, 2026, we'll start seeing aircraft movement there, which is basically on the doorstep of Wallachia, Warragamba, Silverdale, etc. So uh, there'll come a time, I think, when uh, the state and federal governments will need to kick the tin along and, and build some kind of overpass, preferably not one like they have at Richmond-Windsor, because that really hasn't done anything. I mean, that continues to, to flood in that area. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, we need to make sure that it's a little bit more uh, robust. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, the other challenge we have there as well is um, Wallachia itself becomes isolated. So you're talking not only increasing the height of Blackson Crossing, yep. um, you also need to increase the height of um, sections of Park Road, for instance, because there's really not much value in in making, uh, you know, spending hundreds of million dollars on a bridge um, that lets you get an extra 100 metres to what you otherwise would have got because, you know, Park Road's flooded. So yeah. it's, a, it's a complex one, but something that Council has been, been looking at um, and something that we have been raising fairly consistently uh, with the state government um, when we've been discussing some of our flood challenges we have in the Shire. Well, speaking of challenges, I don't think there's anything more complex of a challenge than whether or not to raise the Warragamba Dam wall. Um, I wrote an article yesterday and I stated that residents and politicians are at odds amongst themselves and each other 
over whether raising Warragamba Dam will help mitigate flood risk. A federal MP for Macquarie, Susan Templeman, I've spoken to her this week, she doubled down on her comments that she isn't convinced of the benefits of raising the Warragamba Dam. I mean, she told me that there's no quick fix and the state government needs to speak to all stakeholders before making a final decision. Now, this was first touted, I don't know, God, decades ago, nothing really has been done and the uh, the state government continues to sit on its hands and I really understand why because there is a lot of criticism of the proposal of raising the dam by some 14 metres uh, and there's also concerns that it will open up quite simply a floodplain further downstream for more overdevelopment and we'll have that problem but tenfold. Oh, look, absolutely. Um, I am f- far from convinced. In fact, I'm quite certain that raising uh, Warragamba Dam is not going to be the silver bullet that some people seem to um, think that it is. But the reality of the situation is that we saw 16-metre flooding at Menangle, uh, and it wasn't much lower than that at Wallachia. And none of the water there uh, comes from Warragamba Dam. Warragamba Dam is not on the Nepean River. It's on the Warragamba River, which joins the Nepean. So all of the flooding that we've seen through Warragamba, uh, sorry, through Wallandilly yeah. and Camden is still going to make its way down, and we're still going to see very significant flooding um, of, of the, you know, lower down the Hawkesbury and Apian. Mm. Um, what they do need to be looking at, however, is things like, you know, releasing water earlier. We knew 10 days out that this was coming. There is no reason that they couldn't have been releasing the water uh, then to provide a little bit more of a buffer. Um, we've got a desalination plant that we are paying for anyway that is sitting in mothballs. There's no reason that we couldn't reduce the capacity of the dam a little bit more and use uh, some of the capacity of the desal plant to offset that. Um, and then instead of spending billions and billions of dollars on a project that's actually not going to stop the flooding, um, we could invest that into flood evacuation routes and road infrastructure across uh, Greater Western Sydney. Like a new bridge is, at Wallachia. Yeah, like, like a bridge at Wallachia, <laughs> like clear evacuation routes, like yeah. emergency evacuation routes that are so, so badly needed but can also double as uh, you know, important road linkages on a day-to-day basis. No, um, absolutely. It, it really does. When you really look at it, um, you can't help but think that it has something to do with enabling development. And the, the Hawkesbury um, flood management strategy um, it itself says that, you know, they plan for 100, I think it's 130,000 additional people by 2040 on the floodplain. Well, if even afraid- David Elliott, the, uh, who's a senior minister within the New South Wales government, is on the record of saying that he would welcome future development. I mean, there's no doubt that further downstream, I mean, you look at what the Hawkesbury City Council Mayor Patrick Connolly said to me only yesterday. It's the only solution. He says his community is exhausted, and I can understand that after five flooding events in two years, but he says if the Warragamba Dam wall had been raised by 14 metres, then he has no doubt hundreds of homes would have been spared. And he also says if we get to a situation where we uh, see an 1867-style flood, which is the worst on record, it's estimated that raising the dam wall would save 7,000 homes from being impacted, along with Billions of dollars of public and private infrastructure. Now, when he runs around talking, you know, in those sorts of terms, is it any wonder that people within the Hawkesbury and, and people around his shire uh, are jumping on the bandwagon of, of throwing a, you know, a massive 14 metre wall on the dam? 
No, look, and, and let's be very clear. There needs to be, uh, you know, th- th- there does need to be mitigation and further things done to manage the flood risk on the Hawkesbury and Nepean. Yeah. This is not about saying we're not going to do anything. It's about how do we do it in a in a cost-effective way that's actually going to achieve the outcome. Um, we, we, the reality is it doesn't matter how high you raise Warragamba, um, we are still going to have significant flooding risk in the Hawkesbury and Nepean. If we completely blocked any water coming out of Warragamba tomorrow, you would still have all of the flood water that comes from the Upper Nepean, that comes from the Gross, that comes from the other tributaries of, uh, you know, of, of the Nepean. By the government's own admission, more than 50% of the flood waters that impact the Hawkesbury and Nepean can come from sources other than the Warragamba River. So putting all of the eggs in the basket of let's just raise Warragamba doesn't actually solve the problem and runs the real risk of making people complacent and think that they're now completely flood-free. Yeah, no, well said. All right, Matt. Well, it's great to talk to you. Um, well done again. Uh, I've just um, thumbed through some of your social media. Uh, I mean, your engagement has just been amazing, and uh, I think it's a credit to you. And, again, I, I don't want to embarrass you because I know you're quite modest under that uh, that hat of yours, uh, which I always see you in, by the way. Um, but uh, I think you've done a wonderful wonderful job um, in keeping your community safe. You've been everywhere. In fact, uh, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine how much money you've spent on petrol <laughs> traversing the Wallandilly during the last couple of weeks, covering the floods for uh, your residents and constituents. So good on you, mate. Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning on this Friday. Great to have you company. All thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Now, anyone who's listened to me for quite some time would know and appreciate that I support and think that uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is a superstar. I think she's wonderful. Anyway, I, I, my attention was caught by a story yesterday with Jacinda Ardern urging an end to black and white views of global conflicts. Uh, The PM says Russia's war in Ukraine is morally bankrupt, but should not be seen as a conflict of democracy versus autocracy. Yeah, the Kiwi president said the world is, quote, bloody messy, unquote, but must take a step back from polarisation and black and white approaches to conflict. Jacinda Ardern has said in a wide-ranging speech in which she addressed the war in Ukraine and rising tensions with China. In a speech to foreign policy think tank, the Lowy Institute in Sydney, the New Zealand Prime Minister decried Russia's morally bankrupt war in Ukraine, but also argued against the hardening of alliances, saying that the war should not be presented as a conflict of, quote, democracy v autocracy, or be seen as an an inevitable direction for other tensions between competing nations. She said at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, in taking every possible action to respond to Russia's aggression and to hold it to account, we must remember that fundamentally this is Russia's war. She went on, and while there are those who have shown overt and direct support, who must also see consequences for their role, let us not otherwise characterise this as a war of the West versus Russia or democracy versus autocracy. It is not. The Prime Minister went on to say, nor should we naturally assume it is a demonstration of the inevitable trajectory in other areas of geostratic contest. 
<laughs> it's easy for her to say. She hasn't got new teeth. <clears throat> While Adern cited Belarus as an example of a country that has shown Russian support, her comments also gestured at China's failure to condemn Russian aggression. And the Prime Minister dedicated much of a speech to the question of China's role in the Indo-Pacific, again arguing against hardening alliances and calling for dialogue and cooperation instead. She said... In the wake of the tensions we see rising, including in our own Indo-Pacific region, diplomacy must become the strongest tool and de-escalation the loudest call. That won't succeed, however, if those parties we endeavour to seek to engage with are increasingly isolated and the region we inhabit becomes increasingly divided and polarised. Well, hard to argue against that. Now, over the past year, New Zealand has come under pressure to clarify its position on China's increasingly muscular presence in the Pacific, particularly after Beijing signed a secretive bilateral security pact with the Solomon Islands and sought a regional agreement with other uh, Indo-Pacific nations. New Zealand has made some incremental shifts toward its hard-aligned Western partners, including join the, uh, joining the United States-driven Blue Pacific Pact and joining UK military exercises in the South China Sea. But New Zealand, which is heavily reliant on China for trade, is still trying to walk a middle road, with Miss Ardern saying it would seek to cooperate with Beijing on shared interests and emphasising Pacific nations' right to make autonomous decisions on their partners and allies. She said even as China becomes more assertive in the pursuit of its interests, there are still shared interests in which we can and should seek cooperation. The honest reality is that the world is bloody messy, is what she said. And yet, amongst all the complexity, we still often see issues portrayed in a black and white way. She said we must not allow the risk of a self-fulfilling prophecy to become an inevitable outcome for our region. Now, she's also called for countries not to become myopically focused on military security. Are you listening, Peter Dutton? and missed the major threat that climate change and economic fragility pose to the Pacific. She said, While we have a concern, and rightly so, about any moves towards militarisation of our region, that must surely be matched by concern for those who experienced the violence of climate change. What happens in the Indo-Pacific region impacts our entire neighbourhood. It follows that we must strengthen the resilience of the Indo-Pacific through relationships and, importantly, economic architecture. Now, as she charted New Zealand's approach to trying to pursue independent foreign policy as a small player in an intensely pressured environment, Ms Ardern re-articulated the country's commitment to multilateral institutions, but she also reflected on their recent failures. She said there was no better example of that than the failure of the UN to appropriately respond to the war in Ukraine because of the position taken by Russia in the Security Council. She said, describing it as, quote, a morally bankrupt position on their part in the wake of a morally bankrupt and illegal war. Strong words from the New Zealand Prime Minister, of course, who is visiting Australia on the tail end of a trip to Europe where she spoke at the NATO summit along with Anthony Albanese. She also finalised a free trade agreement with the United, uh, sorry, with the European Union and held a series of bilateral talks with leaders, including Boris Johnson. Uh, well, probably one of his last, given the news today. Anyway, in Australia, she will hold further talks with her counterpart 
Anthony Albanese, they are expected to include conversations about China, the challenge of climate change in the Pacific, trade between the two countries and the rights of New Zealand citizens residing here in Australia. There we go, the Kiwi Prime Minister uh, with a lot to say while she's down under. Marcus Paul in the morning. On this Friday morning, it's great to have your company uh, around, uh, well, everywhere on starterfm.com.au. Drop us an email. Let me know where you're listening to us from. Marcus.paul at starterfm.com.au. We're also on the iHeartRadio platform, of course, on TuneIn, or maybe you're listening back to the podcast or the Prawncast, uh, which is available on your favourite podcasting platform. And it's all thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Okay, uh, what else is making news today? Well, do you know anyone that actually received a COVID-19 fine? And if they did, did they pay it? Well, new data has been released showing that nearly half of all the COVID-19 fines issued in the MacArthur region in southwest Sydney, valued at hundreds of thousands of dollars, remain unpaid. Revenue New South Wales data reveals that 815 of 1,667 penalty notices issued across 12 postcodes between March 2019 and June 26 this year have been unpaid. Um, Let's have a look. 660 grand or so remains outstanding. The postcode of 2560, which which covers areas like Campbelltown, Lumia, Bradbury... Rose Meadow, uh, where else? Blair Athol, other suburbs around there. Um, apparently, they copped the most amount of fines throughout the pandemic. Yeah, and I remember the criticism at the time, too. Yeah, you know, uh, perhaps police were targeting these lower socioeconomic areas. Anyway, more than 850 notices were issued by authorities in that postcode area, with 2,566 coming in at second, with just over 190 penalties uh, in suburbs like Minto, Raby and St Andrews. Now, I noticed that uh, News Corp had a, uh, had a bit of a... Uh, what did they have? A poll yesterday. Here we go. Should unpaid COVID-19 fines be forgiven? And you could vote yes or no. Now, I voted yes, and I casted my vote, and then I had a look at uh, how it was all looking. But 63% of people who voted so far um, said no. So there you go. I'm in the minority there. A Revenue New South Wales spokesman said the state government's highest priority has always been to ensure the health and safety of people of New South Wales. The public health orders were in place to ensure as many people as possible were protected from the global health pandemic. Revenue New South Wales administers fines on behalf of issuing authorities with penalty amounts set by legislation. Uh, It goes on to say Revenue New South Wales has collaborated with other government agencies issuing authorities advocates, community organisations and legal sector agencies through a cross-agency working group to ensure recovery of fines is fair and equitable. Okay. Well, the spokesman said help was available and Revenue New South Wales was there to support customers having difficulty paying their fines. Look, I've paid off a fine before. It was a a driving fine. I paid it off in instalments. 
Um, customers are encouraged to call Revenue on 1300 138 118. That's 1300 138 118. And they can discuss their individual situation and the most suitable option for resolution. Uh, well, if you can't afford it, a payment plan is the way to go. And you do need to pay it, trust me, because if you don't and you owe money to Revenue New South Wales and you <laughs> expect to keep your licence, you won't. What they do is they'll cancel your registration and then they'll cancel your licence and you'll be stuffed. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back on this Friday morning. It is the 8th of July. Marcus Paul in the morning. Brought to you by Psychology Services New South Wales. It's great to have your company. And isn't it great to see a bit of sunshine as well around the parts? Uh, not so good for the uh, mid-north coast at this stage, but fingers crossed things will be on the improve over the weekends. Well, I could see this coming a mile away. Bye-bye, Boris. You party animal, you. A spokesman for Downing Streets confirmed late last night that Boris Johnson will make a statement to the nation Thursday their time, and in that he's expected to resign as British Prime Minister after a series of cabinet resignations. At least 55 of them went. 55 government ministers quit. That's a lot. And several of the Prime Minister's own cabinet members, including newly appointed Chancellor Nadim Zawawi, I hope I've got that right. He said Mr Johnson must go now for the good of the country. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace also called on Johnson to quit but said he would stay in his role to protect national security. Now, Mr Zahawi, who was appointed by Mr Johnson to his role only on Tuesday night, told the Prime Minister that staying in power was, quote, not sustainable for the country. He said... In a statement, Prime Minister, this is not sustainable and it will only get worse for you, the Conservative Party and, most importantly, all of the country. You must do the right thing and go now. Now, Mr Johnson, of course, had been embroiled in several scandals during his time as Prime Minister, including most recently questions over his handling of a sexual misconduct complaint against a senior official that he himself appointed to a role in his government. It's a huge fall from grace for Mr Johnson, who was elected in a landslide victory in December back in 2019, delivering the Conservative Party its largest majority since Margaret Thatcher's win back in 1987. Now, it's expected Mr Johnson will remain as Prime Minister until a new leader of the Conservative Party is chosen before the party conference in October. Now... Opposition leader Sir Keir Starmer said Mr Johnson's resignation was good news for the country, but it should have happened long ago, the Labor leader said in a statement. He was always unfit for office, quote-unquote. He's been responsible for lies, scandal and fraud on an industrial scale. Sound a little familiar? Anyway, and all those who've been complicit should be utterly ashamed, said the opposition leader and leader of Labor, Sir Keir Starmer in the United Kingdom. Well, as I said earlier in the week, uh, I thought Boris Johnson was the eternal optimist, but how on earth could you stay with 55 ministers resigning? Just untenable. Marcus Paul in the morning.
Alrighty, Marcus Paul in the morning, brought to you by Psychology Services New South Wales. Look, I know we're only uh, not even halfway through July yet, and we probably shouldn't be thinking about Christmas or Santa Claus just yet, although all the very smart people are saving for it right now. <laughs> Give Santa a hand with the presents and the cost associated with. Anyway, here's a, a Santa-themed story of a difference. An alleged drug runner for a Santa-themed drug supply syndicate has faced court after police say they caught him with 15 bags of cocaine hidden in a magnetised container in his car. Okay, are they sure it wasn't in the sleigh? Being... <laughs> being, you know, chuffed along by Donna, Blitzen... Who, who are they, uh, the, the reindeers? Anyway, I'll get to the crux of the story. The alleged drug runner for a Santa-themed drug supply syndicate was caught with 15 bags of coke hidden in a magnetised container in his Corolla, according to police. Now, first and foremost, if you are a successful drug runner, I doubt very much whether you'd be getting around in a Corolla. Or maybe you would. You don't want to draw too much attention to yourself. And uh, we know there's unfortunately a lot of money in illicit drugs. And if you swan around in the, the latest BMW M5 or Mercedes or McLaren or whatever, you're probably going to stand out like... <whistles> anyway, this bloke, his name is Mark Capatti. He's 27. He's from Hasselgrove. He was pulled over by police back on June the 10th after they allegedly witnessed him driving around Sydney with four different people jumping in and out of his car after a short period of time. And they suspected he wasn't an Uber driver. When they pulled him over, they found 2850 bucks in cash, along with 8.7 grams of cocaine, split over 15 bags and a magnetised container underneath his radio, according to police facts. Underneath his radio. What, what, what did they... They probably brought in a sniffer dog. Police allege Capati was working as a drug runner for a dialer-dealer syndicate known as Grateful Santa or Secrets of Santa, in which customers would text a main number requesting the delivery of drugs. The alleged syndicate would charge $300 for 0.6 grams of cocaine in individual bags, according to police. According to the facts submitted to court, the syndicate had several runners, which would operate one between 2pm and 10pm Sunday to Wednesday, and three working from 2pm to 12 midnight Thursday to Saturday. Oh, look at that, hey? That's not bad shifts. Equal opportunity employment. <laughs> I wonder if they have a union. Uh, orders would be placed by text, then coordinated out to the runners through encrypted messaging app Wicker, according to police. When pulled over on the Hume Highway, police alleged Capati said the cash was from his business renting out photo booths. When he appeared in Bankstown Local Court on June 16, however, his lawyer told the court his client was yet to get his photo booth business off the ground. <laughs> According to the police facts submitted to the court, Capati had been charged with drug possession multiple times in the past and had previously been charged with violent offences including robbery and company. He was charged with ongoing drug supply, drug supply and recklessly dealing proceeds of crime. When making an application for bail, Capati's lawyer told the court his client was previously in full-time employment and has strong family ties. He's a good boy after all. Objectively, Your Honour, prior to his arrest, he was employed for nine years at DB Schenker in logistics as a forklift driver. Well, I bet they're happy to have him there. 
He was a team leader with the company, his lawyer said. He resigned a month ago and was looking to start his own business as a photo booth supplier. I wonder if he dressed as Santa Claus. Magistrate Glenn Walsh told the court there was an inference that could be made between Capati having left his job and being charged with ongoing drug supply shortly after, a period of time earning income only based on drug running, Mr Walsh said. It is in my view there is a strong prosecution case for each of the three charges and a high likelihood of full-time custody. When denying bail, Mr Walsh said the nature of the alleged offences meant it was less likely Capati would not re-offend or follow bail orders. It is driving around at the behest of others to earn income by supplying small amounts of cocaine to the metropolitan area, Mr Walsh said. You don't need to be particularly bright to know it's illegal, antisocial and fosters criminal activity. If he was keen enough to do that, I'm not satisfied he would follow any order. Now, Capati is due to return to Bankstown Local Court on August 11, where, well, no doubt he will probably... Um, want to change his plea or, I don't know, keep on fighting, but then he runs a risk, as the magistrate said, of a, uh, a jail term. Marcus Paul in the morning. OK, well, that's about it for us today and for the week. Thank you very much uh, for being a part of the program here on Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe listening to us on the Prawncast, the podcast. We do it all thanks to our new sponsor, Psychology Services New South Wales. Check them out online. Uh, there's links up on the Facebook page. By the way, there'll be more content on the Facebook page over the weekend. You can also find links to a couple of uh, interviews, uh, the one with Mac Gould about Warragamba Dam and a story that I, I wrote. I'm going to start writing some more uh, published pizzas uh, for... I said pieces, not pizzas, sorry. Still getting used to the new teeth. Anyway, published pieces for thebigsmoke.com.au. If you haven't checked it out already, do so. It's a great publication run by my friend Alex Chelios, and uh, it's been so successful she's expanded into the United States. So she started The Big Smoke Australia uh, over a decade ago and is now running as well. The Big Smoke America uh, publishing house. So good on her, and um, I'm starting to write some more bits and pieces for them, which I'm enjoying as well. So it's always good being published. Okay, enjoy the rest of your weekends. We'll catch up with you first thing Monday between 7 and 9 around Australia. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Look after each other, and we'll talk to you Monday. Bye for now. You ain't heard nothing Marcus Paul. Alright, goodie, goodie. This will get you the goodie. This will get you the goodie.